This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash ips. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Sweeney. He's the author of several books, including The Pope Who Quit, A True Medieval Tale of Mystery, Death, and Salvation, which has been optioned by HBO. He's the author of When St. Francis Saved the Church and other books on the early Franciscan, as well as a new series of fiction for young readers illustrated by Ray DeLeon, The Pope's Cat. He's editor-in-chief and publisher of Paraclete Press. We're discussing his new book, Phyllis Tickle, A Life. John Sweeney, welcome to Things Not Seen. It's nice to be here. Thank you. Well, there's so much that I want to get into because this encompasses the entirety of the life of Phyllis Tickle. It occurs to me that I should, first of all, I should ask a little bit about who you are and then from there ask about how you came to write this book. Well, I have worked my whole life in books and in publishing. So for that reason, I came to know Phyllis in the early 1990s. From 1993 on, Phyllis was a friend close colleague starting about the year 2000, probably a close colleague then for the next 15 years. So I didn't have the opportunity to know her as well as as some. I mean, I was was in Memphis doing a book talk and a book signing about a month ago and met one of Phyllis's authors from when Phyllis was a publisher in the middle 70s. And this was an author who came for the talk, and she had been a friend of Phyllis's since the early 70s, and I was awfully jealous. She had the most incredible gift for friendship. And this is not just talking personally, but as you know, someone who researched and wrote her biography, I found it astounding, but yet not surprising, that probably two to 300 people at Phyllis's death thought that they were one of Phyllis's best friends. I still find it amazing, just saying that out loud. If I were to die tomorrow, I'd have like three people who would say I was one of John's best friends and one would be my wife. There's a sense in which we came into the business together a bit. She was 60 years old. I was 26. And she had already been an established poet and writer and essayist and the founder of an important southern publishing company, which she had sold to a larger publishing company. Then she had somewhat retired. And then she was brought back out of retirement to start the religion department at Publishers Weekly. And that was in late 1992, and in early 1993 is when I went from being a bookseller to working in publishing. And I was, as I said, I was 26 and she was 60. So a generation separated us, but we sort of came into religion publishing together, in a sense. And I was one of many people trying to get her attention. I walked up to her at the American Academy of Religion 
It was my first and it was her first meeting, and I tried to say something witty and smart. And, of course, she did what she always did to people like me and said, oh, you are so witty and you are so smart, (laughs) and made me feel fabulous. And uh, our relationship started then, and then we became much closer over the years. We ended up serving on some boards together. We ended up writing a book together, you know, lots of things like that. But that's how we sort of came together, and that's just a piece of my background. And you said at the outset that you were trying to get her attention and that many people were trying to get her attention. Why would many people want to get Phyllis Tickle's attention? Well, she was the guru of religion and spirituality. Starting the religion department at Publishers Weekly was a big deal. Because of Phyllis and also because of some other factors, like the birth of the superstores and a bunch of other things, religion and religion publishing became quite a concern in the 90s, much more so than it had been for decades. Phyllis would say it was the greatest decade in the history of American culture for religion in society and in books and in literature. And I think a lot of that, that might be true. She overstated it perhaps a bit. But I think she was the champion and the guru of religion and spirituality. She was the one who was constantly being quoted in Time magazine and doing interviews on television and talking about how religion had suddenly become cool in the 90s. And everyone in publishing at the time who was focused on religion or spirituality, whether it was Catholic or Protestant or Evangelical or Orthodox or Jewish or New Age or Buddhist or whatever, was trying to get her attention. Because if she would pay attention to what you were doing, if she would recommend something, if she would review something, if she would talk about it the next time she was on television, it meant a bump in sales and exposure and so on. So that's really what I mean by we were trying to get her attention. And we'll get to what she was doing there in terms of the world of Publishers Weekly. But Publishers Weekly was actually probably her second or third career. Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah. Her first career was teaching Latin and English in the Memphis public schools. And then she was a poet, a poet of note. I mean, there are poems of hers that are inscribed in stone in Tennessee State Parks, for instance. And she was a terrific advocate of teaching poetry to children. So she traveled all over Memphis, Shelby County, and Tennessee, going into elementary schools, gymnasiums, classrooms, sometimes with an actor with her. For one year, she, she was traveling around with a mime, <laughs> and she was doing whatever she could to tickle kids with the fun of poetry. She loved the language. She loved to read poems out loud, Shel Silverstein and Edgar Allan Poe and things like that. She did that for years. She often got funding, grants to do that kind of work. So she did all of that. She also then was a dean, an academic dean and a professor, again, of English and the liberal arts. And then she sort of retired from teaching and started a publishing house in the early 70s called St. Luke's Press, which then acquired and began other imprints and presses. And she did that for the better part of 20 years. And then she sort of retired from that and had about six months off, and then Publishers Weekly called. And so in the midst of all of this, she was a poet, she was an academic dean, she was a publisher herself, and then she worked, as you said, kind of the gatekeeper. So let's go back even farther than that. So she was born in eastern Tennessee, is that correct? Johnson City. Johnson City. And so they're in the Appalachian Mountains. That is right. Okay. So tell me a little bit about the family that she grew up in. What was her father like? What was her mother like? Well, her father was the most important influence in her life. I start off the book with a chapter about her mother and her father and 
talk about how Phyllis was in many ways like her father and much more so than like her mother. And she looked to her father as someone to model herself after a bit more than she did her mother. Her mother was a well-read, smart person who was uh, still, however, having to focus a lot on sort of gentility, uh, hospitality. And those sorts of things didn't interest Phyllis a whole lot as a girl. And for those of us who knew her as an adult and as an older person, they didn't interest uh, her much at all. Her father, on the other hand, was a professor and a dean himself at a university. And his whole career had been spent teaching, reading, studying, thinking, talking. And that's where Phyllis took most of her cues. And you mentioned at one point she loved to read Shel Silverstein and Edgar Allan Poe. I'm aware from your book that one of the first poems that she encountered herself was by Edgar Allan Poe. So she grew up with poetry sort of surrounding her. Is that a fair characterization, that this was very much a literary family? Oh, yeah, definitely. She was uh, enjoying scouring the family library whenever she had free time. And she was an only child, so she had lots of free time. Well, and you mentioned about that family library that her father let her run the range of all the books except for two and if I remember correctly from your book, the two were Henrik Ibsen and a copy of Dante's Inferno. Is that correct? Yes, with the scary illustrations. Yes. <laughs> so why, why did her father not want her to read those two books? Well, Ibsen, I think her father thought was too pessimistic, as did, you know, most Christians in the early 20th century. Ibsen was deliberately a bit of a secularist, and I think that probably is part of what the lure was for Phyllis and many like her. And the Dante with the illustrations, I think her father thought it was a bit too macabre for a young child. I mean, she was not even 10 at that point. And yet she found the books. she did you know when they're on the shelves you tend to find them and then you tend to perhaps return them in such a way that it looks like you were not spending the last couple of hours with them and so how was she influenced by these forbidden books Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm ready to speculate on that. But I think Phyllis's interests, literary, spiritual, philosophical, and so on, were so wide-ranging. And I guess the point is that that began at a very early age. As she's doing this, from what you're writing, she's also beginning to write some poetry herself. She writes a play at a young age. And so she's already gotten a bite of the apple in terms of the literary life herself. Yeah, and and, and that was encouraged in the home, of course. So... That makes a big difference. I think she knew from a young age that she grew up in an environment that was very well suited to what interested her. And yep, she staged a play for the you know the kids on the block and began writing poems and, and essays and things like that at a very young age. And was this just precocity or was it, do you feel that there was some kind of spark there? Or, or what do you think was the source of that interest in those kinds of pursuits? I think she was just a person who was about words. I mean, there are... There are those of us who tend to enter the world and understand the world through words, and that was the kind of person Phyllis was. I think that you can see that when she was a girl, and it then went through all of those careers that I mentioned earlier. All of them were in and through words. There's a through line through all of them in terms of literature, and not just literature in English, but literature in multiple foreign languages. She was president of the Spanish club at one point. She taught Latin, as you said. And so she lived in multiple literary worlds. Yep. She was a linguist, very much a a professional linguist as a young woman in her 20s. 
She got her master's degree at, at Furman in that field. And then, you know, later in life, those of us who knew her in the last 20 years or so, she was constantly exploring new avenues of thought, many of them philosophical and scientific. She was always trying to understand how language might tease out knowledge in some way. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with John Sweeney. He's editor-in-chief and publisher at Paraclete Press and the author of many books. We're talking about his most recent book, Phyllis Tickle, A Life. We'll be back in a moment. Looking for signs of hope in the Chicagoland education scene? Bright Promise Fund for Urban Christian Education serves 15 schools in Chicago and nearby suburbs with scholarship funding for students and families in search of quality, faith-based educational options. Visit brightpromisefund.org to learn more about schools where students flourish. Good schools make for good neighborhoods. brightpromisefund.org. That's brightpromisefund.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Sweeney. He's editor-in-chief and publisher of Paraclete Press, and he's the author of many books, including The Pope Who Quit, A True Medieval Tale of Mystery, Death, and Salvation, and When St. Francis Saved the Church. We're talking today about his most recent book, Phyllis Tickle, A Life. So I want to turn now to Phyllis Tickle as a religious person, and I want to start still in her childhood, her youth, with a closet. Because you talk about this closet that she has in her home, and she decorates this closet with cutouts from various religious encyclopedia. But if you could, I'd love if you could describe that closet for our listeners. Well, it was, uh, as I mentioned, she was an only child. So she had run of the house in, you know, in the ways that children will. And she was given lots of freedom to explore and to build and create not just in words, but in other ways that children do that. And in this closet, she expressed her interest as a girl in faiths and gods and goddesses beyond the Christian tradition that she was being raised in. She was raised a very devout and active Presbyterian. And so it's a bit surprising to those who knew her then and some, I suppose, of her more conservative Christian fans, because she did have many, uh, that she started out as a child being interested in Hindu gods and goddesses and bodhisattvas and uh, that she would tear these things out of magazines and she would collect them in various places and statuettes and things like that. You know, in Johnson City, Tennessee, in the late 1930s, early 1940s, if you were to have even, say, Catholic saints or statues in such a closet, it would be controversial enough. But to have some of these other things shows both the freedom, I think, with which she was raised to think for herself and to explore and to be creative, but also just the way that her mind was working at a young age. And when she turned her attention towards religion and spirituality, which didn't really happen full-time until her 60s, all of that sort of came to fruition and came back into her life in a very powerful way. And so the figures in this closet, the ones that had been kind of put on the wall there in the closet, my understanding from your book is that they were predominantly feminine deities. Is that fair to say? I think that's fair to say, yeah. And you express in the book, and I, I can't remember whether it's your words or Phyllis Tickle's words, and I apologize for that, but, she, but at some point Phyllis Tickle either relayed to you or relays in writing that she was very comfortable with 
the fact that Christianity didn't have a feminine deity, but that she was very hungry for the sensuality of some of these other feminine deities. And you mentioned in particular from the Hindu pantheon, and she seemed to have some favorites among the Hindu pantheon. Yes, yes. Kali was one of her favorites. Uh, You know, a very sort of frightening, scary Hindu deity for most of us, if you ever see images of her. But uh, to Phyllis, it was fascinating. And God as mother was something that felt intuitive to her. Okay, but at the same time, she didn't seem to have the instinct or the desire to bring that into what she was learning in Sunday school or to, in some way, trouble the waters of the Christian trinity. Is that a fair characterization? I think it's a fair characterization, yes. I also think that it might be overstating it to say that she was that interested in religion generally. I think this was the way in which children play. And I think that Phyllis was playing, you know, in the way that perhaps I played with G.I. Joes or something like that at the age of, you know, five or six or seven. I think Phyllis was playing with some religious curiosity and was allowed to do that. But I think it might be overstating it to say that she was some sort of a passionate mystic at the age of six or seven. I don't think that's necessarily the case. And so we're seeing a pull but we're not seeing any kind of great articulation of that pull. As you say, she's not showing any kind of prophetic religious ideas or anything like that. She's just interested and she's playing. Yes, I think that's right. And then as is often typical as well, then I think through the high school and college years, there was relatively little interest in religion and spirituality. And then it all came a little bit later in in young adulthood. And I think in that way, she followed a pattern that is common. Well, it's a pattern that she actually wrote about in the 1980s and 1990s. Yes. And so she lived the pattern and then she reflected on the pattern. But let's take a moment and look at that pattern. So she followed this point where she was not that interested. She played and dabbled with it. But then at some point, it began to become more important for her. And you say she was raised in a fairly devout Presbyterian home. Did she stay Presbyterian her whole life, or did she change from that to a different denomination? She began to experiment in college. So she went off to a Baptist school, Shorter College, which is now Shorter University in Rome, Georgia. And it was one of the best colleges in the South in the 30s, 40s, 50s. It doesn't have as great of a reputation today, which is something that saddened Phyllis a bit at the end of her life. But she went off to Shorter. She got a terrific education in the classics and in the languages. And it was while she was at Shorter that she first experimented with visiting an Episcopal church. And again, that feels somewhat typical to me that in colleges, you know, when you're away from home is when you have the freedom to do that sort of thing. And isn't it kind of funny that it's a bit of a daring thing to go into an Episcopal church instead of a Presbyterian one. Well, you write in the book that she had a very specific reason why she chose Episcopalianism to explore, and that was because she wanted to feel sophisticated. Yep, she thought they were the sophisticated <laughs> ones, yes, and isn't that typical, too, of a, you know, of a 19-year-old? But then something in it took, she stayed. Is it fair to say that she went there and she stayed, or is it fair to say that she got an initial kind of experience and then later she came to become Episcopalian? It's more the latter. Okay. Yeah, because then in her early married life, there was more Presbyterian church going for her and her husband, Sam, and even raising the kids a little bit with the Westminster Confession. But then there was a switch. Early in married life in her mid-20s, there was a switch to the Episcopal Church. And let's talk about Sam for a moment. So who was Sam Tickle? Well, he was a pulmonologist professionally, one of the best pulmonologists in the Mid-South throughout his career. 
they knew each other as children. They grew up together. So he was also from Johnson City. His family was a bit more from Appalachia than Phyllis's. So there was a difference in sort of culture and background a bit. But they were good friends as children, and there was sort of an expectation and understanding from a young age that they were going to get married. I mean, it wasn't an arranged marriage, but Phyllis used to joke quite seriously about how things almost seemed to be planned from the nursery, which is where they had first met. And the nursery, this was very young, so she was like six weeks old, he was like 13 months old or something like that? or Even younger, I think, but oh I, don't, I don't remember the exact, I don't remember the exact, yes. And so was Sam also a man of faith? Was he a man of deep faith, or what was his faith like? I'm not going to speak with any authority on Sam's faith life because Phyllis was my subject, and so I didn't get as involved in material on Sam. But there is quite a bit of Sam in the book. They were a complicated couple in matters of faith, in part because Sam was often dissatisfied with wherever they happened to be congregationally. So they would be there for a year or a couple of years or a few years, and then something would happen and Sam would be upset and would want to leave. And there were many times over their decades-long marriage where Sam prompted a movement from one congregation to another. And Phyllis, of course, in the last 30 years of her life, had a very public profession in religion. And it was often a question of whether or not to bring Sam along. Was Sam going to feel okay with what was being done? Was he going to feel uncomfortable? Would he say something sort of outrageously critical and, and surprise everyone, including Phyllis? So there was a little bit of that calculation that Phyllis had to do. And in that sense, religiously and spiritually, they were sometimes at odds, even though Phyllis also had her own strand of feeling uncomfortable in various religious situations. And so I think they shared some of it at times, too. So you have written this biography, and it is described as an authorized biography. So this was made with the approval of Phyllis Tickle. Is that, first of all, is that? Well, that's not how I would put it, because she was gone by the time the book was written. Okay. Authorized is one of those funny words that people use on biographies. And the publisher here has wanted to use that word a lot. And so that's perfectly fine. It was authorized in the sense that Phyllis blessed the project from the outset. She knew I was going to do it. She liked the fact that I was doing it. She sat with me for interviews for a few months before she died, and that was very helpful. But it's not authorized in the sense that she was reviewing a written manuscript. She wouldn't have done that even if she were alive when the book was finished. And it's not authorized in the sense that there's nothing critical in it, because I think anyone who reads the book will see that there are places where I am sometimes critical of her writings, or I take a sort of a critical perspective of inquiry at times. And so sometimes an authorized biography can make people feel as if it's hagiography or something. And this is not that sort of book. Well, but you also make an interesting comment. Phyllis Tickle made the attempt at autobiography several times. But you say in the book, almost in passing, that we can't fully trust her autobiographies and that they are the shaping of a life. And you say that the contents of those autobiographies, I believe, your words were kind of deflection and indirection. And I'm wondering if we could understand what you meant by that. When she wrote this autobiography of herself, what was she attempting to do in terms of her self-presentation that you found and were critical of? This is true for so many people who write memoir and autobiography. I've never written autobiography, but I have written memoir, and I have been guilty of this myself. So maybe that's part of why I was so quick to see it in Phyllis. 
you only focus on the aspects of your story, of the narrative of your life that you want to relay to the reader, that you want to put forward as your persona. Sometimes that's because you're trying to make yourself look good. Sometimes it's because that's who you know as yourself most commonly and keenly in the present. Sometimes it's because you don't want to hurt the feelings of those who are close to you, those who are around that are characters in your life, whether you mention them by name or not. So there were all of those kinds of reasons. So she was often deflecting and she was often excluding details and she sometimes even got details wrong and that was innocent at times. But at other times, she would get details a little bit wrong in a way to enhance the story. Phyllis was a great storyteller. And those of us who read her journalism, for instance, in religion and spirituality in the 90s and the early 2000s, know what a great storyteller she was. Because on television or in print or on radio, if she was talking about a book or a trend in books or publishing or something, she would make it sound like the most fascinating thing that could possibly be happening. And those of us who were smart in those days really believe that we probably owed her a portion of our paychecks. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Sweeney. He's editor-in-chief and publisher of Paraclete Press, and he's the author of many books. We're speaking of his most recent title, Phyllis Tickle, A Life. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with John Sweeney. He's editor-in-chief and publisher at Paraclete Press, and he's the author of many books, including The Pope Who Quit, A True Medieval Tale of Mystery, Death, and Salvation, as well as When St. Francis Saved the Church. We're talking today about his most recent project called Phyllis Tickle, A Life. So in her third, fourth career, after she leaves Publishers Weekly, where, as you were just saying, she was so good at helping to create stories around other people's projects. She begins to really seriously write book-length pieces of her own, and probably the one that garnered her the most attention in that period was a book called The Divine Hours. And so I'd like to, first of all, kind of talk about that book, where it came from, and the kind of impact that it had, both on her life, but also on the religious landscape. Yeah, well, this was right at the turn of the millennium, and it was something that uh, Phyllis had been practicing in her personal life for decades that she had learned from her mother, which was praying the hours. Interestingly, though, the idea of creating books that became the divine hours, and it ended up being several volumes, uh, three primary big fat ones, but then lots of spin-off kinds of volumes. The idea for creating these books came from someone else, came from her agent, Anyone who's ever tried to pray the hours before the divine hours were created by Phyllis knew that you had to have multiple books. 
you know, you had to have a biblical text, you had to have prayer books, you had to have, you know, breveries and missals and all sorts of other things. And you would be juggling back and forth if you really wanted to pray the hours. A lot of ribbons, if I'm remembering correctly. <laughs> a lot of ribbons. So, because, you know, the Psalms and the prayers and the, and the quotes from the saints and all those things, they were not all in the same place. So... Phyllis's agent was at a retreat house one day and had this idea looking on the shelves at these big books with all these ribbons and these leatherette covers that somebody should create something so that by the seasons of the church year, you could just have what you needed right there. You could open the next day and have the prayers there for the morning or the evening or whatever. And Phyllis jumped at this idea, and it was perfect for her, handmade for her, really, because she had been praying the hours for decades since learning it from her mother. You know, even at the expense of mothering small children at times, you know, at three o'clock, she would go to a chair and she would sit for 20 minutes or 30 minutes and pray when the kids were probably banging around after school, you know, looking to tell their mother all about their day. Their mother was often praying. So it, was, it had been a priority for a very long time. And these books had a big impact. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people read them. They're still in public libraries, in church congregational libraries all over the country. They're still used by people every day. And they really made Phyllis's reputation. They were all produced, as I mentioned, right at the turn of the millennium in 2000, 2001, 2002. And this was right when her work at Publishers Weekly was winding down. And she was happy and anxious to be able to start expressing her own spirituality, her own writing, and get away from journalism. And so as she's doing this and as she's getting away from journalism, so she's incorporating her own multiple decades spiritual life into this first major project. And as she's beginning to make this turn to write about this, you say hundreds of thousands of people had an attraction to this book. Did she begin then going around and did she become the praying the hours guru? What was the impact of promoting the book and moving forward from the book? Yeah, she did a lot of that. I mean, I mean that's what Phyllis was so good at was lecturing. She was a natural traveler as well. So she did a lot of that, explaining to people why praying the hours is important and then demonstrating how it's done. The appeal for these books was wide, I think, because evangelicals were at this time looking for resources from the early and medieval church. They were looking for things, you know, pre-Reformation, and that was kind of new among evangelicals. And then, of course, a lot of evangelicals, as, you know, Robert Weber used to say, were on the Canterbury Trail. And so there was this growing interest also in evangelicals becoming Anglicans or Episcopalians. And then you get teased by what's in the Book of Common Prayer, which is some of the kind of stuff that you find in the Divine Hours except that Phyllis made it all much more accessible. And then Catholics were the primary ones who we were using those books with all those ribbons and those leatherette covers and things, and they all of a sudden had something more accessible. Even though the sources in the Divine Hours were not exclusively Catholic, they felt awfully Catholic to most of them, and it was satisfying to many. So, so that's part of why I think the audience was so broad for these books. What fascinates me is that earlier in the conversation, you said that in her hometown of Johnson City, Anyone who was even Catholic or had Catholic iconography or statuary in their house would be looked at sort of askance. And yet you're telling me that Phyllis Tickle's mother, who was raised in a good, devout Presbyterian household, had been praying the hours for years. And here Phyllis Tickle becomes an emissary for evangelicals and Protestants to rediscover this rich vein of history that was preserved largely by the Catholic Church. 
Yeah, I think all of that's true. I, I would just throw in there that there was a bit in Phyllis's childhood home, a bit of an anti-papist kind of strain. So that could be part of the explanation for that closet and all of those non-Christian gods and goddesses and things is that it could be that including such images would be perceived as including bits and pieces from literature, world literature in a sense. And if it were icons and statues and cards of saints only, then that might even have been more objectionable. (laughs) I'm not sure. Well, and then I want to shift from this, her first major work on Praying the Hours, to probably the work that now she's best known for, both famously and in some regards infamously, and that is her chronicling of what we might call in various names, emergence Christianity, the great emergence or emergent Christianity, and she was very careful to delineate these different terms. But for our listeners who may be unfamiliar or may have only heard a glossing of this, first of all, what was the attraction for her to begin to look at this as something that was happening and unfolding before our very eyes right now in history? Well, this is one of the most interesting questions in Phyllis's life. What was the attraction? Was the attraction simply what the journalist, the prognosticator would want to chase down when you're seeing all of these changes in congregational life, when you're seeing new understandings of of what church is, when you're seeing Christendom falling around your feet and people of faith responding to that, not just by wringing their hands or complaining or trying to buttress it with a new moral majority or something, but actually creating new things, new ways of being Christian. All of this is what became the you know emerging church of the 90s and then beyond. And so just simply Phyllis, the journalist, would be fascinated to chase all that down. And she was. So I'm sure that it began there. You know, it was a trend, uh, multiple trends, feeding into something enormous, and she wanted to figure it out. But it wasn't just that. And that's the big question, the interesting question, I think, of Phyllis's life was how much was she the champion, actually, of this thing that she was becoming a scholar in understanding? And certainly there was a lot of the champion there as well. And the basic thesis, if I understand it, is that about every 500 years, not just Christianity, but all major world religions seem to undergo a kind of epochal shift. And so if we look back 500 years, we get the Reformation. If we look 500 years before that, we get the Great Schism. If we look 500 years before that, we get the founding of contemporary Judaism at Yavna and and some major shifts in Christianity with regard to doctrine. And so she sort of looked at this rough 500-year cycle, and she said, guess what? We're in one right now. Right. And how was that received by listeners and readers? Well, it varied as widely as you might imagine. I opened the book by talking about a a talk that she gave in Atlanta at the National Youth Workers Convention in 2007, where she was on the docket with people like Shane Claiborne and Rob Bell. It's kind of of funny, isn't it, to picture 80-year-old Phyllis on the dais with Rob Bell and Shane Claiborne, but that's what she was always doing. And she was as cool as they were. But anyway, I opened the book with an anecdote about uh, the first time and the only time when Phyllis was actually accosted physically, and it was after giving a talk at this enormous gathering of mostly evangelicals some post-evangelicals, as Phyllis would call it, because she loved words like that, and some, I'm sure many of them, people who might in years to come become post-evangelical, but a very evangelical crowd, and they did not like hearing that Christendom was falling, 
But that was Phyllis's whole message that day. And it was often Phyllis's message when she was talking about emergence Christianity, which was something that was a phrase that she coined. Emergence Christianity, what are we emerging into? And it was always a question that couldn't exactly be answered. And that doesn't make those who are seeking certainty in faith or in life generally happy. So she made some, a lot of people very upset at times, and she made one guy so upset that he sort of grabbed her as she was walking off the stage and started to shake her by the arm, and they had to save her. But other people found it invigorating. I mean, other people found it like she was handing them a puzzle piece that you know they could fit into their own lives, and all of a sudden it made sense because she was explaining to them what was going on, that it, everything felt so chaotic. She called it a rummage sale. Every 500 years, these every 500 year rummage sales, you know, the church and religion writ large wants to just sell everything, get rid of everything and recreate it or find something new and that we're in the midst of that now. And that can be very disconcerting, particularly if you work in religion and her audiences were often clergy and youth pastors and deacons and counselors and book publishers and writers and people who make a living in religion and whose passion is religion. And so that can be un, uh, difficult to hear. When you're recounting that story, one of the two people that protected her that day when she was physically accosted was a man by the name of Mark Osterreicher. And he later goes on to say in one of his blogs, I think you quote, that he heard Phyllis Tickle speak later and he was actually brought to tears by what she said from the stage. And what she said is, we're given a tremendous gift right now. We're at this point where Christianity is changing and we get to shape the faith for the next 500 years. How will you shape it? And he, he said that he was, even though he comes from that evangelical tradition, he found that challenge to be very impactful to him. Yes, as did many, as did many. I mean, uh, my experience, not only with Phyllis personally, but in researching and writing the book, was that many, many people would go to hear her give essentially the same talk over and over again. I mean, you knew what the talk was going to be when Phyllis was coming to your church or your conference, and you knew that when she was there last year at the same time, she gave pretty much the same talk she's probably going to give, you know, tomorrow night. But she still went because she was brilliant and she was funny. She was smart and she was witty. You knew you were going to take away something that you didn't take away last time. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with John Sweeney. We'll be back in a moment. So for those of you that are longtime listeners to Things Not Seen, you may be aware that I do another show called The Francis Effect with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan priest. Every couple of weeks, he and I get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, Dan, why should I be talking to you? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest, and a professor of theology here in Chicago. And that's a good question. I have no idea why you should be talking with me. But if people are interested in what a conversation between you, the otherwise uh, respectable host of Things Not Seen, and me, the not-so-respectable Roman Catholic priest and theologian, I think they should tune in. Yeah, they should definitely tune in. So that's The Francis Effect, and you can find it at francisfxpod.com. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with John Sweeney. He's the author of several books, including The Pope Who Quit and When St. Francis Saved the Church. We're talking about his most recent project, the biography of Phyllis Tickle, Phyllis Tickle, A Life. So you have said that there are people who were buoyed and who were uplifted by her message. You also said that there were people who were put off by her message. 
How did Phyllis feel about her message? Was she very excited by this new time, or was she a little afraid and upended by the fact that things that were traditional were changing? Well, she was she was speaking to herself as well as to her audience when she would say, uh, you know, the challenge of you, you have to, we have to figure out how we're going to respond to all of this change. She was talking to herself as well, and she would sometimes give examples from the past of, of ways in which Christians of the past, I mean, maybe it was Christians who believed in a flat earth, you know, in 1450 or something, and then to all of a sudden have to reframe the imagination to see that the world is round instead of flat. Well, does that mean that when I die and my body goes up into the air at the resurrection to meet my Lord, is is he going to be there? Because he might not be there if it's a round earth all of a sudden instead of a flat earth because the earth was understood as a stacked universe, you know? And she would give anecdotes such as those to explain to an audience that no one should make fun of anyone who is going through this kind of change and trying to navigate it because these are the most important things. And she was often talking to herself when she was talking that way, but she was also endlessly curious and endlessly, I think, flexible and willing to be uncertain. And those are great qualities that not many people have. How did she feel in that tension? I think she had an extraordinary ability to live in tension. She had learned to do that since childhood, I think. And she, when she would get criticized as being anti-feminist, to herself she would chuckle that this was really quite funny because her life in many ways was a precise demonstration of second-wave feminism. But then she would, you know, disarm the situation or the conversation by saying things like, I've had seven children to this one man, and so I can't possibly claim second wave feminism for myself, but might have been a bit of false modesty because her life was very much about that. She had an extended life where she was working first in one field as an educator and then as a publisher and then as, as kind of a gatekeeper as a publisher. And then she had almost this entire next career as a person publishing popular books on the Divine Hours and popular books on historical Christianity and the Christianity that was emerging in our very eyes. But then her husband dies in 2014 after a prolonged decline. But then in the wake of that funeral, she begins to develop a protracted cough. And then soon she is diagnosed and she realizes that she is about to pass. And so she goes on to say at one point in a fairly well-regarded interview that made a lot of press at the time, dying is my next career. And so I'd like to spend the last few minutes just sort of talking about the way in which Phyllis Tickle approached the surety of her own demise. Yeah, and you can't talk about this chapter of her life without referencing the near-death experience that she had at the age of 21. And what was that? Well, uh, your listeners should look at a PBS documentary that just came out late in March called Into the Night. And there are nine people who are interviewed on that documentary and Phyllis is one of the nine and then she has about 10 or 11 minutes of video there and it's powerful stuff. It's Phyllis three months before she died in 2015 telling her story to the interviewer and it's a story that Phyllis had told in print on more than one occasion so it's not as if this is a scoop in the documentary or in my biography but when Phyllis was young she and Sam were trying to have children and she was miscarrying frequently there were multiple miscarriages. And so an experimental drug was tried. And this experimental drug, for whatever reason, threw her into a coma. 
And so she tells this story of being in a hospital bed and knowing that Sam was in the room and that there were medical people in the room, but that her soul leaves her body. And she tells the story as she went up into the corner of the room and was looking down at them, pounding on her chest. And so she talks about having been gone for a brief amount of time. And she even describes the tunnel, you know, the sort of uh, paradigmatic uh, near-death experience tunnel experience, going down the tunnel and then and then saying to God, I still have things to do and I, I want to have this man's children. And she goes back and then she ends up having seven children. She gets off that damn drug and she, <laughs> she ends up having seven children. But anyway, that near-death experience then colored all the rest of her life. It covered the next 60 years, and you can't overstate the way to which it colored her experience, particularly then at the end of her life when she received this diagnosis that she was probably going to die in about six months from lung cancer. She was not afraid in the least, and she would say things to that effect, and people always, you know, when you hear people say things like that, you're not quite sure if they really mean it or if they don't or she absolutely meant it. So she never doubted the afterlife for a second after that experience when she was a very young woman. And so as she has this approach towards her own demise, and she eventually does succumb to the lung cancer, what was the reaction of the religious world? What was the reaction of her contemporaries, those whom she had touched? Well, the reaction when her diagnosis was revealed was dramatic. I think I chronicle that in the book a little bit. The speed and sort of velocity of the sharing on social media and, and so on, the news of Phyllis Tickle's diagnosis. And one of the things that I found interesting at the time, because at the time I was very close with Phyllis, and it was pretty soon after that diagnosis that the decision was made that I was going to write her biography. So I was keeping track of these things pretty closely. I found it interesting how um, how she responded to what she saw as much too maudlin a response to even her own death. You know, she had no interest at all in those sorts of ways of looking at death. She looked at it just as frankly and matter-of-factly as she looked at everything, uh, controversy or not, throughout her life. So that was always interesting. I mean, there were times I remember when the blogosphere or the social media was full of sweet talk about Phyllis and how she was going to be gone. And Phyllis, meanwhile, would be texting with me or some other person about some project she was still in the middle of while she was in the car on the way to her doctor or, you know, radiation treatment or something. And I always kind of got a kick out of that. I mean, she just had such an indomitable spirit about her all the way to the end. The only way in which that spirit was dampened, I suppose, at the very end was that she could no longer really talk. So she couldn't get on the phone anymore. And being such a great talker, I know that was difficult for her in the last couple of weeks. Well, John Sweeney, in a season past, when I was a professor down in Memphis, we had occasion, my wife and I, to go out to Phyllis Tickle's farm and to be with her. And we did not know her nearly as well as we would have wished either. But reading your book, there were several points where I was brought to tears just remembering pieces of her life and the impact that she had. So I want to say, first of all, thank you for writing it, but also thank you for taking the time to speak to me and my listeners today. My pleasure. We've been speaking today to John Sweeney. He's the editor-in-chief and publisher at Paraclete Press. He's the author of many books, including The Pope Who Quit, A True Medieval Tale of Mystery, Death, and Salvation, which was optioned recently by HBO. And he's also the author of When St. Francis Saved the Church and other books on the early Franciscan. He's also the author of a new series of fiction for young readers illustrated by Roy DeLeon called The Pope's Cat. We've been speaking today of his new book, Phyllis Tickle, A Life. 
Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kijin. It's made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. Thank you.